Gresham College presents the Peter Naylor Memorial Lecture on Defense, War and Truth, Conflict, Security, and the Media, by Robert Fox, defense correspondent for the Evening Standard. Uh, well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Peter Naylor Memorial Lecture on Defense. Um, I'm Tim Connell, chairman of the Gresham Society and a fellow of Gresham College, and I'm pleased to welcome you this evening to Staples Inn. Now, why Peter Naylor and why defence? Well, Peter was fortunate to have had a successful career, both as an academic and a civil servant. He also had experience of the Royal Navy, ranging from the lower deck to the Polaris programme. He was a professor at the Royal Naval College in Greenwich. He was head of department at Lancaster University, and he had an interesting and distinguished career. He was also proud to be a Mercer and also an old boy of Mercer's school. So he was the ideal person to lead the college back to Barnards in Hall in the early 1990s. In a line of distinguished provosts, and the college has been very fortunate in that respect, he displayed a combination of erudition and wit that made him perfect for the job. He's also remembered by many of us for his style, his academic ability, and his personal kindness. His time in office, tragically, was marred by cancer, and he died in 1996. Now, why defense? Well, this would seem to be an obvious topic in the light of Peter's work with and for the Royal Navy. It's a subject which is significant and as strategic as ever it was. So we're fortunate this evening to have Robert Fox as our speaker. He's well known as a journalist and broadcaster on a range of conflicts from the Falklands to uh, Iraq, defense correspondent for the Evening Standard, a prolific writer, a regular contributor to a range of periodicals, and is also a senior associate fellow at King's. And his topic tonight is a very current one, war and truth, conflict, security, and the media. Robert. Thank you very much indeed. Portentous title, isn't it? War and Truth. I can't claim copyright. It was invented by Peter Hennessy, so blame him. First, a word of thanks and warning. I'm honored to be the fourth Peter Naylor lecturer in defense in this series, which was opened by Sir Kevin Tebbit in 2001, followed two years later by Admiral Lord Boyce, and years ago by Sir David Omand. I didn't know Peter Naylor well, but I do realize that our paths did cross, particularly at Greenwich, where I did the inevitable session on the military and the media at the staff course. But of course I know of his work and reputation, but I do wonder what he would make of me, a hack, a journalist, the lower pond life, reptilia, the fourth estate, giving a lecture in his name. He, a distinguished public servant, an luminary of this college, me well. Spot the obvious difference by predecessors in title and style, a knight, two knights, a baron, and you might question my title to this grand, but I speak to you as a journalist and a reporter. The other party, the counterparty in the dialogue with the community integral to the subjects and themes of my three predecessors. Defense to be understood needs to have to have, needs to, requires a relationship with the media. And my subject is the role of media reporting and journalism in our world today. How it informs or misinforms the collective memory. That pool of public information which will come to be known in time as history. In recent years, we have been wont to hear, particularly in defense circles, of the revolution in military affairs, the RMA. But I'm sure Sir Michael Howard will be able to correct me on this. I believe this expression has been around for rather longer than we think. I certainly have found examples of it towards the beginning of the 20th century, and I think that it's almost been concomitant with the introduction of industrial warfare. 
It's been around anyway. But my subject is the other RMA, the revolution in media affairs. And that has come very swiftly, so swiftly upon us. It is actually, in terms of the spectrum that I'm going to give you, less than 20 years old, a major change. In terms of the way we receive news, we digest news, it has brought us via satellite, through radio and television, the video phone, the mobile phone, and the internet, instant communication with the theater of operations, the scene of action. In format, we have the blog on autonomous journalism, the free sheet, talk radio, and the players are the blogger, the citizen journalist, empowered by being at the scene with the means of communication. Frequently, a mobile phone with a camera facility. We had a very powerful example of that in the uh, transport bomb attacks two years ago on the 7th of July. This has led to a huge uh, expansion of what we must describe as the information space, making it truly global. But at its center, the centers of production, editing, and management are becoming increasingly fragmentary with a sense of growing uncertainty of exactly what their remit is and to whom they are transmitting the message, a fragmented medium. And this has been marked, not only for this reason, but for others, but it is an important component in the decline of what I would call metropolitan print media. In this country, we are the world leader still for the national newspaper. But national newspaper readerships I think the world over, and I had a good look the other day, are in decline. The other part of my newspaper life has been working in Italy, and I've worked in and around newspapers there for more than 30 years. And I find it quite striking. It's a country when I, I was shared from the BBC by the Corriere, we were roughly the same population, within a few hundred thousand. It's only in the last four or five years that the population of the British Isles has been increasing significantly, and likewise, uh, Italy has begun serious decline. But it's still around, I would guess, 56, 55, 56 million. But think of this. The current newspaper readership in Italy, is a daily readership, is around 2 million <coughs> and going down. And I think we are beginning to see the same here. There are fewer journals of record and in the US, for instance, I think the journals with a true metropolitan reach, speaking for the whole of the domestic territory of the USA, I think you could count on the fingers of two hands. And I won't exa exaggerate. I mean, obviously, the New York Times, Washington Post, the, the LA Times, but the Philadelphia Inquirer, and so forth. Newspapers of the kind that actually you can buy in London, Paris, or Berlin but it's in huge decline. And that is being followed by centralized, metropolitan broadcast news services. We see, on the other hand, the rise of information by other means, particularly through the internet and broadcast through the internet. And I think even the BBC will acknowledge more young people in this country under the age of 25 receive broadly what we would call news information through uh, means like YouTube, which is broadcast on the internet, than they do from mainstream BBC television news. This enormous change has given tremendous opportunity who though, of those who can use the new means as not only instruments of propaganda, but for malign, offensive, 
purposes. Let's paraphrase Clausewitz again. It is for them, for organizations like Al-Qaeda, the prosecution of war by other means. So faced with this enormous change, the fragmentation at the center, what is to be done by the citizen and the community, the journalist and the government? Or do we just accept the situation and just shrug our shoulders and say, as my friend Rupert Smith says in his book, The Utility of Force, media is like the weather and you must put up with it or work with it. Looking at this dilemma, I have come to some very provisional conclusions, and the accent is on provisional. No one agency in the present information and media spectrum can hope to dominate the information space. You cannot have total control of information. And I think that this is the dilemma that the generals in Burma slash Myanmar faced because even if they could shut down the internet, and we know they could for a day or so, the news would get out by other means through the periphery, particularly from travelers getting out to Thailand and neighboring countries, including China. And this is where the propagation, I think, of notions such as global war on terror gets into trouble and has got into trouble. There will always be competition out there for any notion of a single, driving the uh, a single driving message and a single conception of reality. Given that, while you cannot hope to dominate the, the total information space, uh, this is vital in terms of defense, security, and public support, you have to control your own narrative. Tell your own story or someone else, not particularly well disposed very often towards you, will tell it for you. In doing this, you have to work with some notion of truth. It sounds rather odd and naive to say that, but let me expand a little. By that I mean ground truth. Facts on the ground, you might call it but based on the empirical testing and discovery of facts and the ability to test them thoroughly and continuously. Now, this does not sit well with the commercial dynamics of much current media practice and much of current media structures, where they have the maxim, as you well know, comment is cheap, news, facts on the ground, are expensive. Now I'm coming to this entirely at this point as a journalist and a reporter. This is where I differ from my predecessors. I'm an outsider looking in. I have to um, slightly uh, show the lining of my jacket here and the color of my money. I'm a reporter with some historical training and background and stimulation which I still enjoy, and I continue to enjoy writing popular history and following some of the uh, new and current thinking in history and his hist historiography. And at this point, if you, uh, if you will forgive me, I'd like to indulge uh, uh, myself uh, in acknowledging the influences of my great teachers, Acadian McFarlane, Carl Liza, Angus McIntyre of Magdalen College, Franco Venturi, and AJP Taylor, whom I came to know as a journalist, as his producer at the BBC. And finally, a remarkable Irishman called Liam Dupour. All did as great things for journalism as they did for history. And by the way, I thought of trying to emulate Alan Taylor, talking without notes, but I wouldn't remember even the meager sprinkling of quotations that I have in this text. Anyway, you have a talk with notes, and I will write up this lecture according to demand. I'm aware of two awful warnings about journalists sounding off on platforms 
and uh, from their armchairs, or in the columns of the Times and the Guardian, or even booming through the microphones in the cosy studio of the Today programme. Quote, any journalist who tells you he knows what's going on is probably missing the real story going on under his very nose. That's um, a quote from uh, the whodunit uh, out this year by that master of tartan noir, Christopher Brookmeyer, in his latest book, um, uh, Sinking the Unsinkable Rubber Ducks, which is a brilliant essay on neocons, by the way, and neoconservatism. But more poignant is this, and in, when I'm out in the field, I think of this and dwell on it more and more, depend upon it. He who pretends to give an account of a great battle from his own observation deceives you. Believe him not. He can see no farther, that is, if he be personally engaged in it, than the length of his nose, which is Captain Mercer reflecting on the first big engagement of his troop of the Royal Horse Artillery at Waterloo. He did write it with the gift of great hindsight a long time afterwards, but I keep on saying to the gallant Cavalier, dead right. Now, to cut to the chase, the revolution in media affairs. We have two very convenient dates, and they're both 9-11, one in the European and British style and the other in the American style. 9-11-89, the Berlin Wall starts coming down. 9-11-2001 in the American style. I needn't spell it out to you. But both of these events anticipate and come with major shifts in the way media will perform and what it will deliver. What it will deliver. Following, and it was coincidental, at the time of uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, at the end of 1989, we have the arrival of satellite broadcasting, 24-7 news, and the concept of rolling news. Is there enough news to fill that space? Big question. The implications of this are realized in the 1990-1991 Gulf operation to oust Saddam's forces from Kuwait. Does it chill? Does it storm? Does it saber? I'm sorry to be pedantic. I loathe people calling it the Gulf War because there was immediately prior to that, as we all know, a really, truly terrible Gulf War, which I was in on the edges of, uh, which took uh, one way and another, destroyed at least a million, million and a half lives between Iran and Iraq. But the characteristic of the 1990, particularly the 91, when the hostilities, uh, ground hostilities and the air offensive opened, is that instant broadcast came from the scene of battle in a way that it hadn't, even from the Vietnam War. A lot of it was pre-recorded, a lot of it was delayed. This means that the media and the reporter is in the battle space. He or she becomes willingly or unwillingly, wittingly and unwittingly, instrument and a participant, an agent by his or her very presence. They cannot claim to be spectators from beyond the boundary, like the Duchess of Richmond leading her party out to watch the Battle of Waterloo from a safe distance. I give you a clear example of this, which I witnessed. CNN had its sight on the roof, rather like the camera there, of a hotel in Dahran. And one of their more handsome young reporters, inevitably known as the Scud Stud, Arthur Kent, was reporting the general aerial activity. And he was absolutely beside himself after breakfast one morning. He said, here come those four tornadoes of the RAF up from Bahrain, and they're heading into Iraq. And by golly, were they heading into Iraq. And guess who was watching CNN at that time? Real time, the air defense gunners in the Basra box who had had their forward radar knocked out. CNN had become, in the battle space, part of the forward air defense. Very interesting. This was the CNN war. 
This was the time and the place when CNN made its name. It became a powerful advocate, and hence we get the piece of jargon. I think this is quite often misunderstood, but it is an important phenomenon known as the CNN curve. Let me explain. The CNN curve says this, that when you have scenes of such egregious suffering or wrongdoing, the television medium becomes advocate and then jury and tells the governments to act. It becomes a powerful lobby, which is unstoppable. And at this point in my narrative, in the March of 1991, it was so. The uh, CNN, the other networks, the BBC, showed these dreadful scenes of the Kurds of the North being put to flight. They were truly awful. Uh, women and children being driven out of the villages. There, there are some reports, unconfirmed, um, I was on the point at one point of, 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 of getting a, a schoolmaster to tell me exactly what happened, but there may have been uh, um, uh, phosgene or mustard gas, uh, primitive stuff, uh, released from helicopters at them. Anyway, large numbers of Kurdish folk were driven out of the north of Iraq and towards Turkey. Such was the effect of these images on television that we had the response, something must be done. And John Major, and he seems to be the first protagonist, persuaded President Bush and President Mitterrand to react. And we had um, safe havens carved out of uh, parts of northern Turkey and then eventually northern, uh, southern Turkey, then northern Iraq, and this was called Operation Haven. And it set off a course of events which has delivered a, a true autonomy for the Kurds. It led through many twisty byways to the present Kurdish regional government, KRG, the most stable part of post-Saddam Iraq. But CNN oversold that position and oversold the case. Broadcasters particularly began to assume greater power than they really had or really could deliver. Now, my friend and colleague, Nick Gowing, has done a wonderful study of the CNN curve uh, when he uh, was on a sabbatical at Princeton, and it's still available in the public domain, and he came to a very important conclusion about media lobbying, and it, and it shows you where the interest and influence of media reach, reaches its limit. The CNN curve, people will, government, governments and politicians will only react if there is a vacuum. In other words, if they haven't made up their mind already, if they don't know what to do. If the CNN curve was as potent as some of its earlier protagonists might have claimed, we had millions of people throughout the country, certainly well over a million and a half, nearly two million in the cities of this country, not just London, marching on the 17th of February 2003 to protest against the oncoming war in Iraq. And what effect did that have on the Blair government? Absolutely none whatsoever. So it is not an inexorable law. But what this new era of wall-to-wall -wall broadcast of news brings to you in what is already a highly narcissistic game greater emphasis on performance. We know in a way that we hadn't probably since Total War, when the Ed Murrows were around and the Humphrey Brinkleys later, that we get the news brought to you by Christiane Amanpour, by Kate Aidy, by uh, Martin Bell, John Simpson. The personality of the reporter almost becomes more important than the content. And there's a terrible sort of vulgarism in this, because the most important figure in satellite broadcasting, live, round the clock, rolling news, is the person at the dish. 
not the person out in the field digging up facts, plowing through mass graves or whatever, but it's generally the girl, I'm afraid, looks come into this, who's broadcasting, and inevitably, I'm sorry, we are course fellows, she is known as the dish bitch. But the dish bitch becomes absolutely dominant. Acutely narcissistic actors in their own drama. And participating, thinking they were actors in the drama, and this became very, very strongly marked in the Balkans, by no means the bloodiest conflict of the 1990s, but certainly disproportionately publicized with this kind of broadcasting. There was a lot of broadcasting from, from, from Africa, as you know, but very little in real time. You get partisanship. Uh, this is where I had a deep difference with my colleague and friend Martin Bell, because he coined the phrase journalism of attachment. I'm really proposing you a re-examination and a regeneration of journalism of detachment, by the way, just, just, just to give you a clue as to what all this is about. Martin believes that you have to take sides when you are faced with egregious crime and evil, crimes against humanity. Uh, there are awards for this, uh, given for altruistic uh, purpose, uh, uh, reasons, motives. I, 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 do not deny this. Amnesty International Awards, though. But this goes too much the other way, and it did actually in the Balkans, because too little, I feel, was said for empirical analysis, objective assessment, and reassessment, and detachment. Polemic has its place in journalism. That is trite. That is a truism. It's a cliché and reporting even, but it has to be handled with care. Because once partisanship pollutes a narrative, it is very, very difficult to recover. Can I give you an example? On the 19th of December, 1992, The Guardian pub publisher published a full-page news feature article about the rape of Bosnian Muslim women in the Bosnian conflict which had been running since April that year. The reporter came up with the figure of 12,000 victims in eight months. According to unnamed, unspecified international aid sources, the same reporter whom I will not name, but um, you can look up. If you go to Collindale, it's there in the record. Reaches the astonishing figure of 20,000 Bosniak Muslim women who were victims by only the following February. So we've gone up by 8,000 within six weeks. Again, according to unspecified international aid authorities. Now, the Red Cross, for various reasons, is extremely wary about publicizing its conclusions. But at a Reuters Foundation conference three years ago, a colleague and friend, Urs Bergli, the chief spokesman of the International Committee of the Red Cross at the time, revealed that at the end of the conflict, after the Dayton Accords, the ICRC Central Committee ordered a full inquiry into this, these terrible allegations. And in three and a half years of conflict, which we had come to by November 1995, by their very strict, I admit, criteria, the Red Cross could testify to only 237 cases of women for, from all communities. But ladies and gentlemen, the thing that worries me most is that if you go and look on the websites, particularly of syllabuses for uh, victim studies and feminist studies in the US, you will find the Guardian's figure of 20,000 is still used. And you can't get it back. The 
other characteristic of the new communication and the narrowness of the time of the link between the reporter in the field, the discovery of the fact, and the editorial process at base, and it's very obvious, you get a tremendous amount of backseat driving from base. You start getting the narrative space being shaped from the center. And you will get more and more, it's always been there, the vision and the understanding of the center and not the periphery. Marvin Kalb, a colleague, very distinguished foreign correspondent, professor of communication at uh, Harvard, at about this time reflected on how media was changing. It had become judgmental rather than narrative, based on opinions and judgments rather than sourced facts. The old BBC and Reuters criteria which, uh, rather amusingly, Alastair Campbell brought up in uh, uh, the Kelly affair, that you had to have two solid, trustworthy sources before you could go to air or go to print, uh, was going out of the window very, very fast. And in, up until the 60s and 70s, till the Vietnam War, those were rigidly adhered to particularly by the two agencies that I was deeply involved with, both the BBC and, and, and Reuters. Kalb said speed is important above accuracy. And it's populist. It's a news you can use. It becomes consumerist. And of course, the emphasis is on youth, the elusive search for the younger reader, for the younger listener. The Murdoch press, unwittingly, because it has always been turned on them with some justification, came up with a, an ugly bit of jargon for all this, infotainment. And it's coined, coined largely around the Murdoch press, and infotainment came in, by the way, long before Fox News, no relation, by the way. But it's where information weighed against entertainment, with the latter often having greater weight than the former. It was part of the entertainment business. Titillation of, uh, with your information, or without it. Now we come to 9-11, my second benchmark, and the existential panic after. Why the impact? This has been raked over time and again. But uh, I will just quickly go through a checklist, as I see it. It was an attack on US metropolitan territory. The enemy was so clearly within the gate. It is believed to be one of the greatest photographed act of concentrated killing on US soil since the Brady brothers. Were, had their camera teams, very early camera teams, at Antietam Creek, and photographed the famous sunken road. And the photographers were at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg in the American Civil War. It was shown, as we all know, in real time on television. It was not recorded. It was, the, the drama was unfolding as the second plane went in. Importantly, and I don't think we pay enough attention to this, it was a narrative given to the world in image rather than words. And this is me. It was an apocalypse partly or wholly foretold. And I think that is the central element in causing the panic whose ripples we still feel. Now, this is quite difficult to explain, and at neocon conferences that I've been at, or sponsored by well-known neocon organizations, and I was at one only 10 days ago in Prague, they find this impossible to swallow. The difficult one to explain is that there was a narrative out there which was publicly accessible through the media that something big and bad was going to happen 
going to happen to us at home. The notion of a jihadi threat that had an Islamist component was relatively recent in this story, but it had accompanied apprehension at the time of the millennium, the year 2000 coming in. The rumors had circulated about plots to hijack or destroy air airliners inbound and out from Los Angeles and over the Pacific, in and out from Manila, and we now know there is a certain amount of substance to that because the evidence was discovered on the hard drives in the Al-Qaeda safe house in Kabul, which incidentally was not discovered by the CIA, but hooray, it was discovered by the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> but we have to reach much further back, not all that further, but at the beginning, towards the beginning of our RMA, our revolution in media affairs. The alternative narrative for those interested in the underground in the US, really the emblematic event with a resonance far out of uh, proportion to its size is a standoff with a couple of farming families against federal agents, the Weavers and the Harrises on August the 21st, 1992 at a farmstead called Ruby Ridge near Naples, Idaho, which is about as remote as you can get. There were deaths. A federal agent was killed and a marshal was killed. And uh, one of the weavers was killed, a teenager, and there was a siege. And th this resonates right the way through until 9-11. It is celebrated in song, in ballads, in underground music. There is an alternative story. This was big, bad government at its worst. It was a conspiracy. Others charged it was a conspiracy really by white supremacists uh, with the Harris family in particular, the mountain men, the militias of Montana and, 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 and Michigan. They achieve iconic status and it gets caught up in the great story, which then shifts to the Mount Carmel ranch of the Branch Davidians at Waco, where on February the 28th, 1993, the US Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives tries to raid the settlement. It is an extremely bloody encounter. I had to remind myself when I was writing this lecture just how dreadful the Waco incident was, how badly it mismanaged it was throughout. Four agents and six Davidians were killed in the first action. You had a long siege to the 19th of April, 1993, then 79 people are killed when the federal authorities are ordered in by Attorney General Janet Reno, including 21 children. And this is followed on the anniversary two years later, as you know, by the bombing of the FBI building in Oklahoma where 168 people identified and one possibly unknown. There is one limb, by the way, and they still haven't identified were killed. It is very interesting how the conspiracy narrative about these events is maintained and sustained. And sharpest observers of the political weaknesses of men Bill Clinton, when he goes to offer his commiserations, by paragraph five in his speech to the citizens of Oklahoma, is mentioning and warning against the false rumors being put around by talk radio. Talk radio is the shock jocks. They're still immensely powerful in the uh, era even of the internet. And we're talking about pre-internet now. Uh, the, the, the most famous one, still going, at the time of Oklahoma is uh, Lyndon LaRouche. And one of his conspiracies was, after all, it was all done by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and, it, and uh, uh, with the help of uh, the Special Air Service. This sort of stuff gets out there. It may sound bizarre, but Simon Ingram of the BBC did an excellent uh, reportage on the streets of Oklahoma City uh, three years ago for Five Live and the consensus amongst the Vox Pops 
was the people, the hand really behind it was a combination of, this was 2002, 2003, of Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. You've got it. So it's very, very difficult to extract um, these uh, things once they start. But most interesting, and, and most interestingly studied, is the event that happened just before Oklahoma. In another, right across the Pacific, on the 20th of March, members of the Aung Shinrikyo cult released siren gas on the Tokyo Underground. 12 were killed, 5,000 required treatment, most of them not seriously hurt. Very interestingly, Shoko Azahara, the founder of this strange cult, which has a weird amalgam of Hinduism and Buddhism in it, became a martyr figure in the underground literature and ballads of the US underground, mentioned in the same breath as David Koresh, and the Weaver family, and the Harris family. And all this happens before the age of the internet. And the first apocalyptic movement to use the internet uh, in our cognizance, that is, North European, North American, just to take note, is the suicide cult of Heaven's Gate. And um, by the way, they put dreadful internet viruses in at the same time if you wanted to, if, if you wanted to go into it. But so a kind of war was going on out there. These elements fed into each other a single unifying apocalyptic vision based on the shaping of an exclusive reality. Al-Qaeda plays into this. But the shaping of information and versions of event to f events to fit an exclusive, solipsistic view of reality, a self-contained view of reality, is, of course, not confined to one side. This solipsistic view and absence of debate has marked areas of the polemic of what we may call the neocon view. We will make our own reality. We will shape our reality. Uh, just in case you think that this is a figment of my fevered imagination, uh, my colleague, Ron Susskind, an outstanding investigative journalist, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, recalls um, a conversation with an unnamed Bush administration advisor in 2002, who says, um, we are now in what we call the reality-based community, in which he defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality. That he said that that's with guys like Susskind and myself. That's not the way the world really works anymore, he continued. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judici judiciously as you journalists will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too, and that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to study what, what we do. It's a narcissistic, almost paranoid, but certainly solipsistic. It all happens within our own experience. And that's why you get such a balance in, this, in, this, in the shaping of the, uh, of the approach to the shaping of the information space between um, Al-Qaeda, jihadism, and people like the... Um, the, 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 the uh, Shinrikyo cult. There is, was a very fine book written by Jap Japan's finest magic realist novel, novelist, Haruki Murakami, who interviewed 250 people connected with the Tokyo attack three years later. The most interesting part, I'm allowed to move away from the microphone, this is the book, sold at airports, the most interesting part is the interviews at the end with the 25 members of the cult. And this is where he draws out these, uh, the, 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 these characteristics. They have conceived through their own jargon, through their strange cult, their strange theology, a view of the world 
which, as Murakami says, is detached from the reality which most of the rest of us enjoy. What I'm trying to get at, ground truth. So we have an alternative narrative out there. Sorry about that digression, but I really had to explain what I meant, an apocalypse foretold. As uh, Abraham Lincoln said in that pivotal phrase in the second inaugural, which is the most elegant proof of how you keep control of your own narrative, given just a few weeks before he was assassinated, and by the way, his assassins were looking at him as he gave the speech, if you see the only photograph of it available through Wikipedia. But as Abraham Lincoln would say, and the war came, or the wars came, in Afghanistan, and Iraq. The aim in Afghanistan was, we know, to get at the center of gravity of Al-Qaeda, the training camps in Afghanistan, is when we come to Iraq, things are rather different. The most curious aspect there is the attempt to shape the information battle, the space where information operations will be a vital part of the plan. I start, will, I'm willing to be stood corrected, but there is no full operational analysis of what went wrong with that information campaign. After all, the exiles around Ahmed Chalabi had assured us that 40% of the uh, Iraqi army would come across and be usable. And great skills in propaganda of all kinds was, uh, was, was, uh, were expended on trying to persuade um, the, the, the people to give up without a fight, and it didn't work. Nothing of that is mentioned in the public media. Now, talking about the Iraq campaign, I will not go into the whole business of embedding. I see nothing complex, nothing controversial about it, because you've always had accredited correspondence with fighting forces. You have to have them, and they have to be guarded by rules of operational security. Otherwise, how do you know the plan? How do you know wh wh what they're trying to do? You will never have total control of accreditation, access, and output as the British authorities had in the Falklands. That will never, never come again. It was a peculiar circumstance. 32 of us, all white, all male, all British passport uh, holders, covered the operation from the, from the British side. If they tried to do it again in that way, those in charge of accreditation to British forces, I would say it, was, it would be most foolish and counterproductive. But in the coverage of Telic or Operation Iraqi Freedom, the media arrangements of the forces were outflanked by the presence, which was predictable to an extent, of the Arab media, Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya. Just to give it a label, as I said, 1990-1991 was the CNN war. This was certainly the Al Jazeera war. Exclusivity was no longer guaranteed. You would be broadcast from the theater of operations by people who didn't necessarily share your outlook or your culture. And actually, you are bound, if you, if you continue to prosecute the idea, which you must, unless it's a case of total national survival, or, tot or total threat, rather, to national survival, you must have a criti critical press. And actually, the American print press did extremely well looking over their files, particularly from people like Michael R. Gordon, the doyen of my trade as defense correspondent from the New York Times, and John Kiffner. They could explain very clearly in a way that the good World War II campaign reporters uh, reported what the campaign was about, and actually quite quickly, as they did in Italy, uh, Winfred von Thomas was explaining to me, they were allowed to report critically of things going wrong 10 days after the event in 44 and 45, and so the New York Times did. But the great new dimension, apart from Al Jazeera, people coming into your press conferences, to the general's briefings and so on, and not sharing your point of view, not sharing your cultural base necessarily, was this. Salam Pax, the Baghdad blogger. 
He's an architect, I believe, who has English as his fourth or fifth language. He's obviously a highly intelligent man because his English may be a bit broken at times, but it is entirely accurate. There's very little ambiguity about his meaning. And this is quite new. You had a very clear report from inside the enemy's capital saying what was going on. And his extrapolation since as to what was going on in the Shiite communities, particularly when for the first time for many years they could have their great festival of Ashura and how important the political enfranchisement of the Shia clans and of the Shia parties, particularly as we now know, connected to the clan of Al-Hakim, Skiri or the Bada Brigades, and of, of the Al-Sadra, uh, the Yaish al-Mahdi or the Office of the Martyr Sad, Salam Paks, blogging to the Guardian, being able to be picked up on the internet was explaining more, cl more clearly the Im importance and the impact of this than our governments and our own metropolitan media. And the other thing was, of course, uh, we've heard her voice, uh, her words being read, extraordinarily poignant accounts from Riverbend, uh, a, a woman living in Baghdad, and uh, just describing what has happened to her family. Now, with this, you get something else, too. You get the soldier blogger. You get people telling you from the action as it happens and broadcasting to the world what happened. And the most extraordinary example is this. Sergeant, she, she, the US military, don't give her, I think, the accolade she deserves. Sergeant um, Kayla Williams, who was a rock chick. She had a rock band, and like many of her colleagues, she joined the forces to pay her way through college. Very bright woman. She did an immersion course in Arabic and was a frontline interrogator for Ray Odierno's uh, um, division. And she is the first in her blog to mention the problems of a place called Abu Ghraib and the prison there. Kayla, in what she was writing at the time, then put together in this book, which is very, very interesting, as to how the grunt thinks, what's going on in the ground, was deeply disturbed at the way villagers were just being shoveled towards uh, Abu Ghraib, and a lot of them being banged up quite indiscriminately. At least so, she says, and at least so a lot of the subsequent reporting says. And this is a problem for commanders now, because the blogger in your midst is a factor that is not going to go away e easily. I say with absolutely no resentment whatsoever, when uh, General, now Lord, Mike Walker was CDS, and the Black Watch went forward to Babila, to Camp Dogwood, uh, to uh, provide support for the second American operation on Fallujah, and by the way, do go and see the vernacular play, because it is taken verbatim from soldiers called Black Watch, which is coming on at the Barbican very soon. Mike Walker said the irresponsible reporting by the media had given away the position and compromised operational security of the soldiers. It actually becomes more complicated than that because as you will see from the Black Watch text of the play, they were picking up, the local reporters in Scotland picking up the blogs, the email messages and reports of movements coming through to the regimental association at the regimental headquarters. And they were putting it literally on notice boards, from virtual notice boards through the internet. It was there for all to see. Plug and play, as they say. So, I will wind up now. The internet, a large and uncontrolled conversation, where rumor carries the same weight as attested fact. Yes, it does have subversive elements. It does undermine, uh, because it is untested. And you can level the criticisms at it that were leveled at the Wycliffe Bible, or the encyclopedia of Denis Diderot. And it is different in quality from those two because of the unrestrained, uninvigilated nature, uh, nature of it, of the conversation. But it is the great crossroads of competing narratives. It is a threat to government, 
and established media alike, and in both in their authority and their function. And they're in a muddle about this, as is illustrated in the lead-up to the Hutton inquiries, which ostensibly revolved around the authenticity of reporting of what the unfortunate Dr. Kelly did or did not say, and what his real role and importance was. Actually, if we look back on it, and I, this was a discussion with my immediate predecessor as Naylor Lecture, Sir David Omand, that drew, draws this thought, it touches the core of our debate about war and truth. Because what really was going on, what you really wanted to interrogate Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair about was why did the UK go to war against Saddam Hussein's Iraq in March 2003? And this is why this still lingers. Those of us for it, and I'm not, I must confess, one, um, would feel that it hasn't been explained properly and with some justification. And, uh, and the puzzled critic into which role I cast myself also feels the same. From January 2003, Tony Blair never explained. He never really explained his motive for this. It's not why war, why now, too, and why the particular threat posed by Saddam and his forces. And in that, because the Americans were going to do it anyway, I think it's just not sufficient. Now we have the published diaries of Alistair, Cam uh, Alistair Campbell, the sorcerer and the apprentice, with Tony Blair, as I always said, and both thought he was the sorcerer and the other was the apprentice. But Campbell never confides to their diary, at least, why we went to war, why, in Lincoln's powerful phrase, the war came. It was more the media battle. It was more his battle to dominate, the, to dominate the information space. And I think that that's why his words will not cross that gap, that strange middle ground alluded so famously to by Alan Bennett in his play. There's no period so remote as the recent past. That is the transmission ground between reporting and history. Into this mix, we have to put the effectiveness of Al-Qaeda in creating their own narrative, based on fear without pity, based on fear without confirmation. And it, that doesn't have to be linked to facts on the ground. It can say what it likes, provided it can generate doubt. So, in conclusion, what do we do? We have to maintain a balance of open inquiry, and this depends on an open media and reporting with the strict caveats of all that this means of operational security for the operation, the mission concerned, the nation, the community. But an open media is a vital part of civil society and the dialogue between civil society and civil government. A media operation strategy which requires co-opting co media, coercing media, is bound to fail. Media operations in modern military parlance can never be a part of psychological operations, black and white propaganda. Collusion for a journalist is the death of credibility. Open journalism must be based on reporting based on the facts on the ground and not the opinion first. And I once worked for a paper, my last job as a staff correspondent was uh, with a paper where the editor's contempt for the reporters in the newsroom was on a daily basis barely concealed. He valued his own intelligence and the superior intelligence of his cronies who sat round in the editorial room. The Gong of Havelock Sands. This could and should be the, be the tool of history in measuring and understanding and evaluating and establishing context. And this is where I understand what Alan Bennett is saying, but it is not good enough. No period so remote as the recent past. For a journalist, it's not very useful. 
because we've got to get into that area that falls between immediate memory and the regions which can be susceptible and analyzed by serious historical investigation. But news, like Blair's and Bush's policies and visions of the world, is an increasingly context-free zone. It's as if the Talibanization or the Taliban conversion of large parts of the Punjab, now as we speak, the Mahdi's armies of Bukhtar al-Assad's approach to uh, distributing oil revenues from southern Iraq, and uh, the power base and the historical power base of Ahmadinejad come to us out of the blue. They don't. Now, I would love to tell you, I think part of the problem is why journalists lie. Lovely headline, that's a deceit too. But um, what I would really like to go into was why journalism misleads. And it's to do with the economy, the commerce, and the very narrow market of, uh, of, of, of media today. And that's my Scheherazade moment. That's for another day, for another day and a night of 1001. Uh, but I would like to conclude with what I would, would term my Velasquez moment. What cannot be left to one side is the fundamental question of war and truth. We need to restore the journalism of record and in the public service. Public service broadcasting, facts, journalism of record. It is the missing volume in the vast library of media studies today. There may now be an argument for taking public service journalism of record away from the BBC and setting it up on a profit-free trust basis. That again is up for discussion. But I would leave you with this thought. We Italian journalists always love the line, it's actually much more elegant than the English version, se non è vero è ben trovato. If it isn't true, it's well found. It's a version of don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Well, rather pompously, I'm going to say to you, that is not good enough. And I'm reminded by this of the splendid exhibitions last year uh, in London of Holbein, particularly the picture of Christina of Denmark at the, at, at the end, but above all of Velasquez, and the last poignant room there, Truth must be the basis of journalism of record, tested, retested, revised, and revisited. But above all, it's the truth that must be spoken unto power that the independent journalist must aspire to. I would now like to call upon Professor Sir Michael Howard to propose the vote of thanks. Uh, Sir Michael is distinguished both as a military man, former guards officer, holder of the MC, and as an academic. He is one of the founders of the Department of War Studies at King's, as well as the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's also a distinguished public figure, as both a companion of honor and a holder of the Order of Merit. Sir Michael, would you like to come to the microphone? Well, Robert, you wondered what Peter Naylor would have made of that. Peter Naylor is a dear old friend of mine. He was one of the first generation of what were now called defense academics. That is to say, people in universities who felt that defense had got to be studied as carefully and as accurately and with the same scholarly discrimination as economics or sociology or any of the other activities of society which are so significant for us in our own day. Uh, he was one of those people who were anxious to link speculation, scholarly analysis with the brute realities of what was actually going on on the ground. And I think that what he would have made of that lecture would have been, it would have been, it was great. Uh, Robert, you referred to yourself as the pond life 
of, um, of, 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 of war and indeed of, of the world. Well, that was the attitude of the, the great Lord Kitchener, who, when he was interviewed by journalists after the Battle of Omdurman, simply said, get out of my way, you drunken scum. <laughs> I don't think anybody in the 20th century, and certainly the second half of it, would dare say that to journalists, however much they might deserve it. And very few of them did. In the Second World War, the great journalists of the West, people like Alan Moorhead and Christopher Buckley, like, like, like um, Eric Severide and Ernie Pyle, were the people who not only transmitted the narrative and created the narrative, but it was a narrative that one trusted because one trusted them. They were men of great physical courage, tested every day, of scrupulous accuracy in their transmission of facts and of balanced judgment in the way in which they, they, they dealt with matters. We have had equally eminent journalists in our own time. Sir Max Hastings is one, and you, Robert, are another of them. It is because you have shown in your whole career precisely those qualities of courage, accuracy, and balanced judgment that we have listened with particular interest to what you have had to tell us. We have taken on board all the problems which you have described to us, uh, and we will go away better informed and, I'd like to say, infotained with the emphasis on information rather than on entertainment, but nonetheless entertainment. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.